Hello, my name is Phoebe Hall and I'm a senior editor for The Lancet Infectious Diseases. Today I welcome you to a joint podcast from The Lancet Infectious Diseases and eBiomedicine on a new series from the journals titled Combating Childhood Infections in Lower Middle Income Countries, Evaluating the Contribution of Big Data. The series was led by Professor Bieta Kampman, who is the Director of the Vaccine Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Scientific Director for Vaccinology Research at MRC Unit The Gambia. Today she is here to discuss the series with two of the series' lead authors, Dr Karen Keddy, an independent consultant who at the time of working on the series was contracted to the South African Medical Research Council, and Professor Peter Gazal from Cardiff University in the UK. Welcome everyone. Beata, I thought we could begin with you summarising your vision for the series. Yes, thanks Phoebe. So, As you know, my own research is based in both high and low income settings, and this has always faced me with the question of how to generate science which can have meaningful impact and how to bridge gaps and lead to real translation of knowledge in either direction. And having worked with your journals, um, I've seen that there's a shared interest here. And I was really delighted when you approached me to lead this series, because I believe that the new technologies and analytical methodologies have brought us unprecedented insights into host pathogen interactions in the context of infection immunity, which is where we all work. And we now need to translate this to improved outcomes for sick children, because especially in lower income countries, respiratory infections and diarrheal disease and sepsis continue to kill millions of children. And the aim of this series is really to bring together the contributions from key investigators in the field and how to address the gaps by applying the new tools. And we need to do that in close interactions and contributions from scientists who equally lead research in high and low income settings. And this is where the series comes in. And I'm really proud of the joint papers that have resulted from these close interactions. And we will discuss these with the senior authors in this podcast. And therefore, I'm really delighted now to be able to put some questions to Dr. Karen Keddy and Professor Peter Gazal. And thank you both for participating. And maybe to get us going, can I both ask you to give a very brief summary of some key messages from your papers and maybe highlight main three main key messages? Maybe, Peter, if you want to start first. Yes, thank you very much, Peter. I suppose the, the key thing that really comes out from this is that there have been very few studies that have been conducted in terms of, uh, especially in the area of multi-omics and even with the big health data collections in low to middle income countries. So most of the research base is is based in in HICS and in the high income countries. And so that's one area that's really highlighted in the in the article that we've put. So increasing more studies in low to middle income countries is an absolutely essential aspect. The second point with that is really dealing with not, um, if you like, parachuting in high income researchers from developed countries to basically take and use data in those countries for their own purposes back again to the high income countries but to work very closely in a sort of co-partnership. And what I mean by that is, is, is really equal partners in developing new technologies. And this must be done on the ground, talking with the healthcare workers that are in those countries and understanding their needs in terms of how technology would really work. And that leads on to the third key point, which is really that there's a the huge opportunity in low to middle income countries to 
to really harness the advancements that have happened in technology, in particular two principal areas in cloud computing and, if you like, the sort of artificial intelligence that can be applied to big data. And so the infrastructure for that um, really means trying to have a more local accessibility to acquiring that data. So if you like, one of the things that we highlight in, in, in the article is the emerging area of tricorder technology. These are basically devices that are handheld devices that are able, if you like, to really take up information from sensors. These could be sensors that are uh, that can be, um, uh, if you like, plugged and played with patients in that context. So you can attach sensors to, to individuals. You can record those. That information could be all sent to the cloud and, and algorithms, uh, clinical algorithms can be then put back to, to healthcare workers into the, a community setting. And that's the type of thing that we've tried to emphasise in, in the article. Great. Thanks, Peter. And Karen, seeing it from the Southern Hemisphere, how, what are the key messages from your papers? So I love the way that Peter's work dovetailed with ours, but in both the papers that we wrote, they really highlight how the new technologies can advance the understanding and management of diarrheal diseases in children. The paper in the Lancet Infectious Diseases highlights the role of big data and mobile health technologies in defining the etiologies of childhood diarrhea and improving the management, such as supporting healthcare workers in managing children with diarrhea and enhancing vaccine uptake. There are caveats regarding data gaps, insufficient involvement of local investigators, which Peter has also highlighted, and unclear national legislation on the role of mHealth and eHealth that need to be addressed in order to optimise these outputs. The eBiomessen paper highlights the analysis of big data that can be con contained in centralised repositories of proteomics data, which would inform on the use of biomarkers in our diagnosis and management of childhood diarrhea and the development of new vaccines for childhood diarrhea. And again, the same caveats need to be addressed. Thank you. Both of you have really eloquently described the future role of new biomarkers for rapid diagnostics in both diarrheal illness for, for your paper and sepsis for, for Peter. But do you agree that there remains a technology gap? Um, and I just want to explore in a little bit more detail, what do you actually think are the most promising approaches and how should they be validated and how then do we translate them to patient care? Maybe, Karen, you want to go first? It's, it's quite a challenge because at the moment, most of the work is really, as Peter's already highlighted, is really at very much research technologies and there are few data coming out of LMICs. But really what they need to be looking at is developing what is currently known in the current technologies into inexpensive, easy to use and accessible tools for use in LMICs and increasing the involvement of LMIC researchers in the use of these tools to ensure that their uptake is good and that the outputs and the uses in diagnostics and management are actually optimised. Yeah, there's still a way to go. Peter, do you have some practical solutions to this question? So, I mean, I suppose the real challenge is that the current state-of-the-art in, if you like, diagnostical tests that are applied are hinged around a sort of a single biomarker level. And what the multi-omic and complex big data is bringing in is the ability 
to get many more parameters or variables that you can build into an algorithm to give you greater robustness and reliability. So the technology gap at the moment is that, yes, you can have point-of-care, rapid, single biomarker testing, but to multiplex that up and have a robust test for diagnostical purposes is a challenge. Now, it's not to say that the technology isn't there. It's yet to be really implemented. I mean, the technology is there. It just needs to be fast-tracked in the ability to multiplex on those assay platforms. Yeah, no, I think that that leads to the question about also how we're bringing the the data or the big data from host and pathogens together, right? Because there are su there's such a heterogeneity in human responses and also causative organisms, and therefore we need really complex systems and data sets. And you are talking about this both from the analytical approach as well from the technology, um, Peter and Karen. Uh, are there any pointers to the most promising approaches that you could emphasize? Well, if I can come in, Karen, with first, okay. I think, you know, obviously we've been doing this for some time, but one of the things that I think is going to be quite transformative is, is, is around the transcriptomics end of things. If you like, transcriptomics is, is just one step removed from where genomics is in terms of, but because your genome is so stringently regulated It's actually, uh, what you find is that in, in disease pathways is that this is reflected quite nicely in terms of the, the, the levels of gene expression that you get. And, and so this is the, if you like, you can get very reliable data, consistent data about disease conditions, uh, particularly in sepsis, which is quite an extreme phenotype, um, and being able to come up with what are reliable biomarkers. However, You can add further robustness to that in terms of the reliability of an assay by bringing in other types of measures as well into that, which could build in both the clinical algorithms that you get from physiological signs, but also data on, say, lipid measurements or metabolite measurements as well that can come into giving you an answer out um, from a diagnostical test. Yeah, Karen, these all still need quite considerable technology platforms, even if the analytical approaches are a bit more, um, well, obvious now. How do you feel about that for the less resource settings? Are those technologies going to be there? What do we need to do to upscale? I think there's every opportunity to introduce them into LMRCs and they may actually better be a better option for LMRCs than current diagnostic procedures are, um, particularly if they can be developed into a point of care test that will capture the data and preferably use that data and, and send it through automatically to a centralized database so that localized analyses can actually be done and burden of disease can actually be derived from that. There are already point-of-care tests that are in use for other diseases. I mean, malaria is probably the one that comes to mind. So it certainly is doable and it certainly is scalable. What really needs to be done is to try and take all of these aspects and turn them into something that's accessible and easy to use, um, given the fact that much of what goes on in LMICs might not even be occurring at hospital level. It might only 
be diagnostics within the clinic or even the community. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Where is it actually going to be used? And ultimately, decentralization needs to be the way of the game. Uh, Karen, in your paper, you make a point about centralized repositories that enable mining of large data sets, um, which is necessary to better characterize risk factors. Now, how do you think this can be achieved and then validate the candidates? And also the important question, who then owns the science and the subsequent developments if everything is centralized? Because that matters to sites. Well, I think it, it really depends on, you know, at, at the study level, I think what's actually happened and I think the trend now is certainly amongst the large funders is to say that the data needs to be open access and then it's easier, you know, and then the centralized database would typically be and should be held at an international level. But I think, unfortunately, often this still gets held at the level of the primary investigator or principal investigator who may be based in a high-income country. So really what you need to do at that level is make it more accessible to those in the country where the study was actually done. If it comes as a general diagnostic procedure, and again, probably the easy example is to look at something like malaria, but generally then it, it needs to somehow find its way back to the National Department of Health. And this is from two aspects. First of all is I think it teaches your Department of Health or the value of taking these approaches to actually look at childhood diseases and the impact of childhood diseases has on the local community. And secondly, of course, it does mean that these data are held in a centralized part so that when it comes to things like budgetary requirements, etc., they can make better decisions. And lastly, of course, it's to ensure that these data are internationally relevant. And one of the things at the moment is the WHO puts out a lot of data calls and, you know, it'll be a good way of actually being able to get a standardized format of sharing these data with um, these sort of overarching organizations, UN organizations who may also benefit from understanding what's going on in the ground of their member states so that they can actually um, use the data to come up with health advocacy programs. Yeah, these are all really important points. And Peter, you had some ideas about how centralized repositories could work in a sort of hub and spoke uh, way. And maybe you wanted to add a little bit to also, do we actually need many more samples when we have so much data already publicly available and somewhat also deposited, but there are restrictions on access sometimes. Do you want to let us know a little bit how you've negotiated that within your science group as well? Uh, yes, so I think there's obviously there's huge challenges to centralizing any any data resource. You know, already there are centralized sources for resources for the omics in particular, where these data are, are housed. The problem is, is how do you all bring that together into a coherent wrapper that deals with the particular disease indications? So if it's for diarrheal disease or for sepsis. You really need to go in and create that information and it needs, um, if you like, there are sometimes the missing bits of information that you require. So all the metadata that goes along with that information to make it usable. And so this really requires an international effort to do that. 
And I suppose the centralization aspect is uh, that Karen's talking about, just really how do you bring that into, into one, a one-stop shop that allows you to then interrogate and use that data. Um, do we have enough data? We probably have sufficient data from understanding what goes on in, in high, high income countries. Um, and you can say that, and that's clearly in, in, a, in a, quite a wide range of disease indication areas. But the ones that we're talking about in particular are missing in low to middle income countries. And there needs to be more, I think, studies done and conducted in those countries. And for that data to be part of the pool of data that's brought in. And I think that's really essential because there may be very subtle differences in the characteristics of the data that you have that relates to the epidemiological and the etiological basis for those disease conditions, especially on the infectious side, and which, you know, comes back again to this host pathogen interaction and things. And the, the pathogen spectrum is somewhat different in low to middle income countries to high income countries. So I think we need to balance between, between those two. Infectious diseases are fluid. I mean, I think the one, that's one thing that COVID has spoken. We can never actually become too sanguine about what is actually going on. Um, the other thing is I do a lot of work with the WHO looking at burden of disease. And all of this basically requires ongoing data collection. So even though you may be changing your data collection methods and how you get those data, I was going to say that I would really advocate, rather than setting up projects, but setting up processes for collecting data on major pathogens that need to be ongoing into the future. Because I think one of the things that's going to happen, particularly with climate change, is we're going to be seeing huge changes in what's actually happening with our infectious diseases. And... It's something that we really need to be prepared for and start being preemptive about in trying to deal with those going forward. In regard to the question of do we have sufficient data already, one area that we covered in our review was the necessity for us to really be using simulation data. As clearly shown with COVID-19, Simulation and predicting outcomes is really a very valuable tool to have. So what we proposed in the review is that in parallel with garnering real, real world data is to also generate a, sim a simulation environment that takes the data characteristics from the real world and modeled that, and that this is then done adaptively as you go forward, as real world data is collected, it can then be used to check and modify the simulation data, so to update it and make predictions. So we put that in, in the context then of running multi-omics data that allows simulation work to go on to really enhance the ability to predict these biomarkers that can be used in diagnosis. Yeah, thank you. And uh, I guess there is a lot to do in terms of not only getting people engaged in sharing their data, but also putting regulatory frameworks in place that facilitate rather than inhibiting us to exchange that data and to also have metadata that are harmonized and, and relevant for, for the questions that we might be asking. And, you know, the data drift, we all know it when we design the database. It's not easy, but it's good to see that people are really actively thinking about this. So my last question,
question relates slightly lateral, but um, what was unique about this series is that we were asking you to bring together male and female scientists from different geographical regions with a focus on LMIC settings with the highest burden of conditions. And most of the time, we're all used to writing papers just with our group members, and it's quite different and a more targeted approach. So how did you identify your co-authors to contribute to this equitable authorship? I approached people whom I had already worked with before or whom I knew from various international meetings that I had met. Uh, when I was first asked to be involved in the series, they did specifically ask me if I could try and get as wide a range of people as possible and representing different demographics, different countries, and even different levels of uh, advancements in their academic journey. And so these were people with whom I had already had some sort of a relationship. And I was unbelievably fortunate in the people with whom I was working, as they are both as passionate and serious as I am in addressing these public health challenges in LMICs. I'm so pleased to hear that. Peter, how did things go for you? Yeah, so very similar to Karen. Obviously, you you contact people that you, you have met and worked with in the past and, and know of, but we obviously encouraged with this outreach. And, and I would say absolutely, it's been absolutely positive. We had some colleagues that contributed um, right across the globe in that context and giving their very unique insight and experience that they have brought to these articles. So there's a there's a, a, a richer fabric that's then provided in the review because it's just not anchored around a single opinion and synthesized as a consensus in in the review. So that's been very rewarding in that context and, and insightful. Great. Well, thank you very much. We hope that everybody who listened enjoyed this podcast. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Karen and Peter very much for their excellent contributions and also give that message to their co-authors. We've really enjoyed working with you. Thank you so much. You can read the new series now on its dedicated hub page on thelancet.com.